Well, so wait, can we talk about this? Because I'm interested. I mean, I feel like I'm a student of Mark Maron and to a lesser extent of, of Terry Gross um, and, and maybe of Jamie Berger. I'm not sure. Hi, everyone. Welcome to 15 Minutes, Episode 11. I'm Jamie Berger. And I hope you can find it in yourselves to indulge me in that intro quote, because the chances of my being mentioned as a podcaster in the same sentence as Terry Gross and Mark Maron again are fairly slim. So I just had to go with it. I met Daniel Oppenheimer soon after I moved to the Pioneer Valley of Massachusetts in 2005. We ended up becoming friends and then blog writing partners. We wrote a blog together called Masculinity and Its Discontents, also known as MADE, for the Valley Advocate, our area alternative weekly, where Dan worked as an arts writer and as the pseudonymous advice columnist Dear Dexter for several years. This year, his long-awaited and significantly longer toiled-over book, Exit Right, The People Who Left the Left and Reshaped the American Century, was published by Simon & Schuster to the kind of fanfare that authors of such books dream about including positive reviews and features everywhere from The Atlantic to The New Republic to The New Yorker to Time Magazine and The New York Times Book Review. Pretty much got a lot of great attention for his first book. Exit Right explores the lives and careers of six major 20th century intellectual political thinkers, movers and shakers. Whitaker Chambers... James Burnham, Ronald Reagan, Norman Podhoritz, David Horowitz, and Christopher Hitchens, all of whom moved from the left to the political right, sometimes rather shockingly and dramatically, over the course of their lives. It's really a fascinating read, and I mention that instead of letting you hear us talk about it, because... (laughs) Dan and I talked a lot about a lot of different topics, including jealousy and fame and ambition and podcasting and filmmaking and Morris Dickstein and a bunch of other stuff. But we didn't end up talking very much about the book. So please do check it out. After our conversation, I'll tell you some places you can go to see and read some of Dan's work as a writer and filmmaker. Dan and I have been in sporadic but friendly contact since he moved to Austin several years ago. We spoke on the phone in June. Hello? Jamie? Dan! Hey. Hey. There we go. How you doing? Good. How are you? I'm good. I, I, I've been uh, watching you today. Uh, I watched the, the C-SPAN video. 
Uh, that was after I started watching the, the interview on from the scary the scary people, and I didn't want to watch that. Um, um, what's their name? The the people that Anonymous hacked. <laughs> um, the other oh, Stratford. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I started watching that, and then I started to have a paranoid fantasy because I've also been reading from the book and thinking, what if Dan is is becoming one of his subjects? <laughs> and then the, the C-SPAN cheered me right up, so that you were not good. I don't think I said my best on C-SPAN, but oh, uh, you were good. Okay, and All you right. and you were um, you haven't aged, as far as I can see. I mean, I've visibly aged. My hair is much say. grayer. Uh, you look great. I think I have aged, but but not badly. No, well, that's good. That's good. I'm glad you I'm glad you feel that way. Um, How are you? I am well. I'm I'm enjoying this this podcast thing a lot. Yeah, you've done a lot of them. I've done them a one a week, short for period s- of time, haven't you? Trying to do one a week, and uh, in eight weeks, I've done seven. Uh, so. Wow. So far, so good. That's, that's a lot. How much time does it take? I mean, uh, it's probably coming down how much time it takes you. It, it's coming down in, my, in the learning curve. It's just these huge jumps each time. And it's just, uh, I don't even know how much time because compared to, say, writing <laughs> and editing, it's all such pleasant time <laughs> that I disappear for hours editing. Uh, um, I wonder if that's at all comparable to my experience when I started getting into video, which is it's like it was this such a lovely thing because it was so much less. I mean, it wasn't just that it was easier. It was also like none of my identity was bound up in it. I don't know. It was just this delightful, like not stressful thing to do that I seem to be able to do for long periods of time with much less anxiety. Yeah, I think maybe for me it's that uh... – I don't have expectations on myself to be supposed to be good at it to some degree yet. Um, but it's funny you mentioned video because that's the one bit of research I haven't done. I don't, you are listed in several places since the book came out as a filmmaker, <laughs> yeah, right. but I don't know you as a filmmaker. Um, are you recording, by the way? You are, right? I am, but I will okay. edit and anything you don't okay. like, you just... Well, I mean, I'm just, I just. it was more just my orientation. Like, should I be speaking as though I'm being recorded? Not in some artificial way, just in some, like, I don't know. I mean, it's funny because it's something we could talk about, which is the experience of suddenly being interviewed, which is something that's happened to me in the aftermath of the book, and, and kind of what, how you become in that space or how I've become in that space and the thoughts I've had about it. Like if you answer yes, that I should think about it that way, I'll probably start talking differently. What I want to do is get to a point where I'm really having conversations with people. And especially with you, because it seems to me in this past year, you've been having these very uh, heady political uh, and intellectual discussions with people, and I do want to talk about your experience and about the the some of the people. You know, uh, you mentioned uh, Pudhoritz, and as especially someone that we might talk about in the book, uh, and also about the concept of the public intellectual as a famous person. Pretty much, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of general fame, is oh doesn't exist. Well. Ta-Nehisi Coates. I think that's 
so I'm not sure he might be the exception that proves that he might be the exception that proves the rule. But I mean, I was reading an article, maybe it was the New York magazine article about him where we're like literally like Usher or John Legend or something There were, there were, or common, there were actual bona fide celebrities who came to a talk of his, who were like trying to get backstage essentially, uh, to meet him. So, but again, that might be the exception that proves the rule. Um, but he clearly, you know, maybe he's not Norman Mailer at the height of his fame, but he's more famous or has more of that aura, I think, than anyone, any intellectual has for a long time. In terms of, yeah, so the point is that we can do whatever we want. Okay. And I, you know, just now I was like, oh my God, what am I supposed to talk to Dan about right now? I have this little list. But we, if you don't have, you know, a strict timeline, I don't have a strict agenda. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm just going to put myself in, in your hands. I have to say, like, I've been looking forward to this, I think, in part because I have done a fair amount of interviews about the book. I mean, a fair amount by whatever standard. And the structure of them, because they tend to be short, even the long ones are, you know, 15 or 20 minutes, is that I felt pretty compelled to, to do a certain kind of thing and answer in a certain kind of way. Um that's a little bit artificial. I mean, I don't think I necessarily sounded artificial, but it's, but it's this, there's, it's not a soundbite. It's a little bit more than a soundbite, but it, it's almost like there's like a, there's like a one to two minute answer that I learned how to give that kind of had an arc or something like that, that seemed to, to fit into the structure of radio interviews. Were you taught at all or did you just start to I just kind of intuited it. I think I, I think I got it right. No, I got no. Tra I got no training. I mean, I think I think I was right about what it was, uh, and I'm not sure. Maybe that just came from, from listening to, you know, listening to these things, or maybe it came from just kind of mirroring the people who were interview interviewing me, or something like that. But I mean, I think I was doing it right for the context, but there was a there was a way in which it felt to me kind of constrained and I got to the end of it not really f feeling like I had been myself in some meaningful way. Yeah, I, I have vague memories of that from when I uh, did a performance piece. Then uh, I brought it to New York and I got to do a couple of interviews and there's this feeling like they're only going to spend this much time on me and I want people to know what I'm doing. And so it wasn't at all natural and I want to sound intelligent in this, like, incredibly efficient way, mm -hmm. right, where I'm not actually somebody who speaks in complete paragraphs, but I think that speaking in, like, complete eloquent paragraphs is, is kind of optimal for that situation. Yeah. But not, but not necessarily, you know, like, the podcasts I like, the ones where people really have kind of room to breathe, you know, Mark Maron or Terry Gross or something like that, like, I, I enjoy... Not that. I enjoy kind of, I think, getting a sense of the people more by the, the more natural ways that they talk. Yeah. It's funny. Those two are the two who always come up. And I have, I have such mixed feelings about both of them. And I, I certainly, I, in doing this, what I'm doing is clearly my personality and the format is along Marini lines. But it, it's kind of like when I used to watch any number of television shows, like even the original office. And somehow I would think that I would relate to and be disgusted by my feeling that I'm like David. 
I'm always I see myself in the I see myself in the worst aspects. Wait, of which Mark. one? David which was one? was the boss. On oh, the what was it? Steve, yeah. Steve Carell or the the no, Ricky, not, Ricky Gervais. Steve Carell was Michael, okay. and Ricky Gervais I think was David. So when I listen to Marin, I just dread that I will get all emotional or or ask the guests if it was okay for five minutes in the end. Well, so wait. Can we talk about this? Because I'm interested. I mean, I feel like I'm a student of Mark Maron and to a lesser extent of, of Terry Gross um, and, and maybe of Jamie Berger. I'm not sure. But but I, I'm the flip side. I've I've pretty much listened to Terry on and off with various degrees of, of frustration for decades. And Maron, I only listen to people I really know. I, I avoid it. So what is it? And I mean, what is the. It's the neediness. It, that's it, in one word. I, I feel his neediness in me, and I don't want to be that guy. Well, no, I mean, that's interesting, because I don't experience him that way, but it doesn't mean it's not there. It's, it's, it, but it's, I mean, I get the, I get the th- sort of thing at the, yes, there's the thing at the end is like, you know, was this okay for you? How, how did it go? But it seems, I guess I'd say two things. One is that seems like it's diminished a lot over the years, Um as he seems like he's gotten more comfortable with himself. But the other one, maybe the more interesting angle on it would be actually if there is something there, but I just don't hear it because it's not a specific frequency that I'm attuned to. I mean, I have my whole menu of neuroses and dysfunctions and insecurities, but it may be one that's not totally aligned with one of mine, but is with yours. So so you're you're hearing something accurately. Um, It's just not audible to me, possibly. Yeah, and you don't fear being that. I don't fear being that. That is yeah, true. Yeah. And I just want to clarify in case I use this, because you know, a million people would tell me not to use anything that's talking about other people making <laughs> radio or podcast. It's too meta. It's catty. It's whatever. But I think he gets incredible stuff out of people by being as open as he is. And the video of him talking on stage to Terry Gross made me appreciate her in ways I've never appreciated before. She opened up. She, it was amazing, and it was because of his. Ooh, I don't like to use the word genius, but it kind of is. He, he, he got her to open up. Well, that was it. I didn't see the video. I listened to the. I don't know. I don't know if it was on his podcast or hers, but I listened to it. Yeah, that was really fascinating. There is some kind of genius, and for the life of me, I can't really figure out what it is. Because um, I've thought about it too, and I've thought about whether I could do a podcast and sort of come to the conclusion that I probably couldn't, or I probably couldn't be the host. I couldn't be the sort of figure around whom it, it revolves. Uh, I mean, I think you can. That's interesting because I'm doing conversations because I can't be what my idol is in terms of radio talking people is a man who goes by the name of Hardy White, who's on WFMU famous to the few thousand people who know him. <laughs> um, and he talks for an hour all by himself. And that I could never, I, I don't think I could ever do. But so long as I have someone I'm talking to who I find interesting, any any fears of my own lack of interestingness, I can I can put off on you and ask you questions about what you're doing. Well, I mean, I guess I have two things to say. One is to respond to your early point, and I mean, you'll use what you use. I actually find these kinds of conversations when other people do them really fascinating. I mean, in part, I think it's because, you know, 
I'm a writer, you're a writer, we're, we're sort of creative professionals in that sense. So there's a process aspect to it that, that I think is interesting to us that may not be interesting to the public. I don't know. Um, but I like it when Marin's talking to, you know, comedians and they're talking shop and he's, you know, trying to ferret out information about Lorne Michaels or whatever. Like, I like that stuff. Like, it feels real to me. It feels interesting. I don't know. I don't know if that's interesting to a wider public. But so to that point, I guess the other point is like, but there is something mysterious about, I mean, if you try and figure out what is the thing that, that kind of Mark Marin and Terry Gross have in common, um, and, and there may not be a thing, but I guess the way I've thought about it is in very different ways, they have sort of distinctive enough personalities, which maybe they've sort of subtly or not so sub subtly amplified for radio that are just that the distinctiveness is part of the genius. I mean, Marin's so much, it's so much more out there, right? I mean, he's got this sort of, you know, there's the way he talks, there's his voice, there's his you know, openness or neediness or whatever you want to call it. He talks about himself. Terry Gross, of course, is the, is the opposite, right? It's like, she, you know, but there's the empathy. There's, I still think there's something she communicates about her in her voice that's very distinctive. And, and I'm not, this isn't false humility. I think I'm a very distinctive person. I just don't think I have that. I happen to have that thing that could communicate that through the radio. Um, I could be like a, 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 I could be part of a team. I just don't think I could be the person. <laughs> but I kind of, I guess my gut feeling is that you probably do. And I don't even know if I could put my finger on it. I'm just going to say thank you. I guess. I don't know. I, I... <laughs> Can we intuit from this that you've actually secretly had a fantasy of being some kind of radio person for a long time? Because you've been so attuned to this kind of thing. I, going back to, to this is, this is turning, we're going to come back okay. to you in a yeah, while. Sorry. But no, I, I like, it's a great excuse to try to explain what I'm trying to do here in a different way. Way back to like middle school, I, from my father, I caught a disease of listening to radio as I went to sleep. Talk, talking radio, Larry King. Larry King was the king of late night back then. And I went through a phase where I'd be listening to 1010 Winds, which is the news radio station. You give us 22 minutes, we'll give you the world, is their slogan. And I would spend eight hours hearing the 22-minute news cycle repeat, and it didn't, my sleep wasn't good. And that's when I kicked it. So I've always been fascinated by it. By, you know, I don't, I'm not a baseball fan anymore, but there was nothing like falling asleep to a late night baseball game. And when I was a young new wave punk rock kid, I always wanted to have a radio show. And then I went to Columbia where it was people who'd had shows for 20 years and it was a jazz station. So I never got to be a, a, a record playing DJ. So yes, I suppose it's always been something of a fantasy. I never thought I'd do it. Uh, after college, because until now there was no format. Well, no, I know it's so wonderful about like this sort of podcasting thing, right? I mean, I mean, even uh, you know, in the best of circumstances, in the in the pre-podcasting world, you had to be unbelievably lucky, right, to be in a in a in a situation where you could do something like this, right? It was so it was so constrained. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I'm kind of excited. I think it's 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 kind of amazing. Okay, so I'm obviously going to have an introduction in which I talk about the book. So you, you, we can pick and choose what parts of it. You don't have to give an intro like you gave at your reading, which was really great. Uh, but I'd like to know both about 
the, especially when you talk to me about Padhoritz and being uh, the guy who found the guy, and also about your experience of sudden success. And let me start with that. And it's not sudden. You signed a book contract in 2006, I learned. In, 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 holy moly. Stick with it, folks. Um, <laughs> I was just laying out that you don't have to give too much background if, if we start to talk about, say, Norman Podhoritz or about your experience with... Oh, so my father, I, I, that's, I came home and, you know, my dad's 87 and he's a retired intellectual who never had the ambition to be a public one. And he reads everything. He reads the New York Review. He reads the New Yorker. He reads... And so he had read about your... I, I knew he would have read a review of your book. So he... When I mentioned it, there was a New Yorker piece. Did he it? have any sense that we were friends? Or, or no, no, I mentioned it because oh, okay. I was like, hey, my friend published this great book. Uh, and, and he talked about it and he said it sounded very interesting. And he talked about some of, you know, as a... As a New York Jew who's 87 years <laughs> he knows. old and has seen, yeah, and he's seen his own, some of his own friends who got very rich and turned very far yeah. right uh, as business people. So my dad talked about it and he was like, that's very exciting. He said, do you ever get jealous of your friends who have these successes? And I said, generally, no, if what they're doing isn't something that I would have done or feel like I could have done better or they got some break that I didn't feel was unfair. And so, you know, when you, you, when I heard about your book, I was just thrilled. Oh, it's nice. Oh yeah. You've worked hard. <laughs> I worked hard. It wasn't right. We're not quite in the same wheelhouse. Um, I mean, I would assume for all of us, right. I mean, if we're being honest, the answer to that has to be yes. Right. Or most of us, I don't know. Maybe some of us have advanced to a sufficiently high plane of, maturity to not suffer from jealousy of our of our successful friends but i honestly think that i have matured to the f point where and i've i've come to accept my own 30 years of procrastination and that that's my own fault that i so i almost solely celebrate if it's someone i really dislike and they're really good at something then i then it hurts if there's someone I really dislike and they succeed, even though they're not really good at something, that hurts. But if it's someone I like and they're at least pretty good at it, I'm... What if it's somebody you like like well enough, like you you don't have any negative feelings, but they're not like somebody you have an enormous amount of affection for, and they're like, okay, and they succeed phenomenally. I think sometimes that bothers me. You know, I mean, yes, obviously if you don't like them and they and they succeed either because, either with or without merit, but, but, but I, you know... The ones that sometimes I get bothered by, you know, um, like I was bothered the other day, and I won't name any names because it's not somebody who I have anything against and I haven't read the book, but it was just one of these books where it was a, and there's a million of them, where it was a comedian um, who had written a book of humorous essays um, and was being interviewed on a big place and presumably, I don't know if it'll be a bestseller, but presumably it'll sell a lot more copies than my book and... I assume maybe rightly, maybe maybe wrongly, but I've heard these people talk about, you know, they, they knock out their books in like a year or two, right? It's essentially a sort of written version of them talking. It's not, it doesn't have, in most cases, it doesn't have the sort of 
craft that you and I would put into something. It doesn't have a level of depth. And it, and it succeeds both because these people have a sort of platform out in the wider world beyond the publishing world, but also probably there's a sort of breeziness to it and there's a, and there's a, it just go, it kind of goes down easy. Uh, that bothers me sometimes. That bothers me when they're sort of being interviewed and asked for their insight on things and they're being sort of, and they're being recognized for their writing talent because it's like above a certain like minimum threshold. That bothers me. Are you trying to depress me? <laughs> Sorry, am I trying to like say actually? Yeah, Jamie, like you, you five should be more people than you. I could have named five people as you spoke. It's like yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I really tapped into something there for you. <laughs> I don't know. It's something. It's a little bit related to your sort of. Are they in the same wheelhouse? In the sense that I'm actually bothered less by the people who are total hacks or just, you know, whatever they're writing, the latest sort of pop neuroscience or, or, or it's something that's uh, such a McBook, such a sort of book as sort of content that, you know, it's not even, I, I don't even feel like we're playing the same game, but they're also not getting credit for playing the game that I think I'm playing. And it, 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 I start to get a little edgy when they start to get some credit for playing the game that I think that I'm playing. Um, or they can just have an idea, get a contract and a deadline, and bust out a okay book and sell a lot of copies. Yeah, it's funny. I, I've sort of had a kind of not the uh, sort of the reverse or the sort of mirror image anxiety in a sense. Like um, in film stuff I've done, I don't know if you have this with the podcast, but where I'm sort of parachuting into this new medium for me, I've been doing it for I've been doing sort of short documentary stuff for maybe now kind of seven or eight years, but it's all, you know, self-taught and it's not, you know, it, I, I do something once in a while and because of certain connections that I have, um, I've gotten some of those videos in fairly prominent places. And mm -hmm. What's the most recent or most, uh, tell me about at least. Well, so one, I, I don't, I just did for, um, I think this was last year or the year before I did for Tablet Magazine, which is a web magazine of Jewish arts and culture that where my brother's an editor. And I mean, so that's, so, so that's the connection. Um, and it was about Morris Stickstein, who's a, a, a kind of the last of the New York intellectuals or one of the last of the, the sort of classic Jewish New York intellectuals. So he's a literary critic. He, he lives on the Upper West Side, teaches at City College. He kind of knew all of, knew all those guys from, from back in the day. I think he's, a, he's not that old. He's in his mid seventies. Um, and I just, uh, so I did a kind of, I guess kind of a profile of him where we did an interview in his apartment. And then we went down to the, uh, apartment on the Lower East Side where he grew up or where he grew up for part of his childhood. And we kind of went and we got into the building and, uh, which is now kind of, uh, is now Chinatown. Um, or a sort of, it's, it, Chinatown has now kind of expanded into this area. Um, so it was about 10 minutes and it was just kind of about, I don't know, it was about, uh, it was being a Jewish intellectual, it was about going back to where he came from, about how far he's come. Um, and I think it's pretty good. And I, and some of the other stuff I, I've done, I think is pretty good. And I feel like I've been, there's a way in which I feel like I've been cheating and I have had conversations with people who 
have been doing film or video for a much longer time than I have, where I, for one reason or another, might mention one of these things I've done, and I get this sense, now this might just be my anxiety sort of projecting itself, but I get this sense that they're like, like, who the fuck are you? And like, oh, lucky for you that you have these connections or that you can pull this shit off. But And so I don't know, I've sort of, I've gotten less anxious about it, but it is interesting where you with sort of, a, I, I guess in a way it's comparable to that period of time, which I certainly had, which you probably had, when you're sort of getting comfortable with thinking of yourself, the idea of yourself as a, as a writer, as a real writer, right? A sort, sort of like, <laughs> no, I haven't had, because I've okay. never gotten <laughs> Well, I mean, and, and for me, it was kind of when I was working at the, at the Valley Advocate and sort of, and was getting paid to be a writer and sort of, because it is ultimately, even if you get an MFA like we both have, it is ultimately this thing you just kind of have to decide you are, right? Like there's, there's, there's not a sort of certification process or an entrance examination or something like that. Um, you just, at some point you just decide, okay, you know, you just, you fake it until you make it. Right. And, and I think with the film stuff, I mean, I'm getting there. I'm not all the way there, but it's been an interesting, I mean, it's been interesting kind of being back in that space again. And I actually, I think deferred trying to do film stuff for a long time out of, I mean, both out of the fear that I wouldn't be able to do it well, but also just sort of out of the fear of, of seeming like a poser or something like that. Like I should have been doing it for a lot longer than I, than I have been, um, because it's something I've been interested in and cared about for a long time. I, I'm sure some of those people are having those feelings that you're <laughs> afraid of and some aren't. Right, some aren't. And I guess what I, what I've started to learn from people who are more used to it is you just do it, you, you know, do what you do and right. get over yourself if and other people's you know not everyone's gonna like you all the time right. and you know it's it's interesting I, I think when i get that sense it's more uh, this is probably gonna sound elitist in some way but it's more from the people who haven't made it or in a lot of cases haven't even made a go of it than it is from the people who have like i was talking to somebody to documentary filmmaker the other day who has been pretty successful. I mean, not feature length, but she's kind of making a living as a kind of video journalist doing some really cool stuff. And she was totally sort of supportive and and encouraging and, and legitimizing. And I think she's just like, she's like, I think it's great to have, she said, there's so many, there's so many ways in which sort of the traditional documentary film world is kind of caught in its own sort of orthodoxies or habits, it's really great that there's people like you who are sort of coming coming in from journalism and sort of thinking about it differently. But I, I think it's more, there's a lot of people, and this is probably true in a lot of realms, but there's a lot of people out there who have been doing stuff with video for a long time, but in very technical capacities. And, you know, and have fantasies of doing feature stuff or doing documentary stuff or whatever, and have just never done it or something like that. And and there's some, maybe some suspicion or, or resentment there. Um, and, and you can go m- m- more and more and more micro on this. I live in Turner's Falls, Massachusetts. It's full of people who do a lot of things that being in Turner's Falls, Massachusetts, they are, ne- you know, unless they hit an amazing lottery, they're never going to get noticed, but they're doing things that one would do for public attention make films, you know, make music. Uh, and and 
even if I was going to say unless they're brilliant, but even if they're brilliant, you know, I I ran into you know oh, there are certain people who would just you know I was going to use Joanna Newsom as an as an example who came from a tiny town in 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 California went to San Francisco I saw her playing her harp in a bookstore uh, and one of my this will lead into the Pothorts because when I did my brief stint writing features. I really, I wanted to be the guy who found the guy. And I wrote one of the very first pieces on Joanna after seeing her. And I became, I went to all, you know, all the shows and we became friends. And I, I wrote this, this profile in a, in a really regional music magazine. I, I wasn't ambitious enough about it, but yeah. And it felt great. But I didn't do shit. She did. But at the time, it felt great. Well, I mean, but I don't know, being the guy who finds the guy, like, I don't think that's nothing. I mean, maybe it's not as, um, and before we get to that, though, I want to say something just, you know, just f- to maybe piss off y- your local listeners. Like, one of the reasons why I felt like I, I was, I was willing to leave, I mean, I left Northampton, East Hampton and moved to Texas primarily for my wife, but I was also feeling like I couldn't stay forever was because it felt like an area where people where it was artistic in one sense, but it, it felt like it was either people who weren't willing to sort of really go to New York or LA or wherever to make a go of it. People who had made a go of it had not succeeded and had come back. And then a few people who had succeeded so phenomenally that they could come to the area and just be, you know, um, be heroes. And, and be, they were so sort of known and, and respected that they could do their work at that level uh, they could fly to New York or LA when they needed to, right? And it felt like there was something. There was. I just wanted more. I just wanted more, more of of that. You know, I didn't want to be in New York. I didn't need that much of it. But Austin has been right for me because it is a place where people are making it, right? Um, and maybe sometimes they're then moving to <clears throat> to LA or New York, but they're doing really amazing things and making those and that that kind of energy exists to some degree in Austin and it felt like it just didn't in it I mean as you said like it, it felt like you could be an amazing band in Northampton and uh you just weren't going to make it right and and the most that you could hope for was and there obviously there were these people who they got good enough or they got excited enough that they were like all right we got to move to New York or mm-hmm. something like that and it, two two big factors i feel in fame are ambition and risk will having ambition and being willing to take risk and not being embarrassed by ambition, which I talk about on here a fair amount of time. Oh man. Well, yeah. And I mean, if you want to talk about Pedoritz, I mean, that's like that sort of embarrassment or that sort of, uh, that sort of internal struggle with, with ambition and embarrassment and self-consciousness. I mean, that's what his whole memoir making it is about. Give people a little, a little, Norman Pothort's background in okay. that. So one of the one of the chapters, one of the six chapters of my book is on this guy Norman Pothort's, who um, was one of the um, kind of made his name as a literary critic and editor. Was one of the sort of later generations of New York intellectuals of these um, sort of writers and critics, uh, most of whom in New York, many of them Jewish, in the kind of you know, I'd say 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, who sort of just were sort of both a community, but then it was, there was a sort of community of style and orientation in terms of how they looked at the world. Um, 
and Pythoritz was was one of the younger one of these, um, but w- was a sort of very precocious. He was an, became an editor at Commentary Magazine, which was one of the main sort of publications of the New York Intellectuals when he was very young. Um, he ended up quitting, but then when he was still very young, was after the longtime editor died, was hired back as the as the editor in chief. And so I think it was in 1960. And so, um, and, and he sort of revitalized the magazine, and he revitalized it initially. Um, so my book is about people who went from the left to the right. So he right, revitalized it initially by actually making it more left wing and and getting it in touch with these sort of burgeoning currents of left wing energy. Um, that were bubbling up in the early '60s. So, so, so his great coup, or his his first coup, which was in the first issue that he edited, was publishing a long ep- excerpt from Paul Goodman's "Growing Up Absurd." And then, in the next, I think, two issues, he published two more long excerpts, and he helped Goodman get a book contract for it, and that became one of the kind of seminal founding texts of the New Left. So he was really so in the early '60s, he was really in touch with that kind of left wing energy and made the magazine really vital. And then what, what I write about in the book, what one of the things that happened, um, and I think he probably would have moved right anyway, but one of the very dramatic things that happened is he, <clears throat> he wrote this book. He wrote this memoir called Making It, which was about his own ambition for success. And it kind of came of him, his internal sort of conflict over, over his recognition that though he was very successful – he was an editor of this magazine that, you know, it didn't have the circulation of, of Life magazine, but it was very influential within intellectual circles. He was friends with people in the Kennedy administration. He was one of those people that Time magazine would call if they wanted a, an opinion or a quote from, you know, a Jewish intellectual or something like So he's pretty high up in the, you know, the, the world of, you know, sort of American status. But it wasn't enough for him. He wanted to be as important as his good friend Norman Mailer. He wanted to be a writer for the ages, or at least um, or at least for the moment. You know, he wanted to write the book that was like the book du jour or whatever. And so the idea he had was to write about that ambition and the and the and the he called it, I think, the dirty little secret of the American left or something. That they couldn't acknowledge that they were all driven by the desire for success and ambition and money. They pretended they only cared about higher things and they were against materialism and all of these things when the truth was, and he was right about this, of course, like the truth was they were also all driven by desire for success and esteem and status. And he wrote this book, which he hoped was going to be his, his, his advertisements for myself, which was the book that Mailer had written, had, which had been very like out there about Mailer's um, but he kind of couldn't – what happened is he couldn't do it as well as Mailer could. And, he, and the book got totally just reamed, um, including by, like, friends of his, including by Mailer. And, um, you know, and it's funny. If you read the book now, you know, what you'd probably say is that it actually got unfairly criticized. Um, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. That probably had to do in part with people's – their own discomfort to the extent that he was onto something, but also their desire to see him taken down a peg because he was not very gracious in the way he handled his own success and and not very artful in the way he talked about his desire for success. Like if you read it now, like it's probably like a B plus book. Like it's actually not a bad book. It's not the A plus that he was hoping, but it's like a pretty good book. Um, but for whatever reason, you know, and we've all seen this with other people where they get criticized, kind of disproportionate to what they deserve for other reasons, right? Um, 
you know, I don't know if Jonathan Safran Four has written the book that got reamed, but after like the kind of success of, I now forget the name of his first one, right? It's almost like this inevitable backlash. You write this book that's... Yeah, the second book, well, it also had all the... the the risks of making a 9-11 Right, but it's like, you know, there were probably nasty reviews of his second book that if you went back and read his second book, like, it didn't deserve because people felt like he had it coming, right? They were waiting, you know? And so there was a, there was an element of that in Pathoritz. Um And I think that, as I said, I think he would have gone to the right anyway, but I think it would have looked very different. He wouldn't have gone as far. And, 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 and his experience of them, he, he writes about it. I mean, he went into, like, a long depression of like a year or two and he was drinking too much and he ended up having a weird kind of you know dissociative or maybe uh maybe epiphanic religious experience where he saw something in the sky and he and he kind of came out the other side a very very different person um and it, it sort of i won't say it broke him but it did it changed him and and it maybe broke some piece of him uh in a pretty interesting way um so i don't know i don't know how that how to connect that to um to us but you were saying you were talking about i had a question somewhere back in there you talked about how he got taken down a lot by 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 actual close friends and colleagues for the book and that is something that as much as uh john ronson wants to write about people being shaming each other and being mean there's a super in club, especially literary, where not only do people not attack each other mostly, but do you remember a few years ago the anti-snark movie? Yeah, vaguely. <laughs> that 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 they that you know certain people who I really think are in some ways great, like the right. beggars, started this movement that reviewers shouldn't be mean, right? right. Shouldn't should only encourage writers, right. and that's just that's just not their job, <laughs> right? You don't, yeah. Uh, so, so, but back then, people would go to war, would they? And they'd make up, or they wouldn't, or they'd have fistfights, or Mailer would have a fistfight with someone, right? And then they'd make up. Yeah, it's, I mean, some of that has come back somewhat. I think you see it more on blogs, and maybe, it, maybe it kind of had, and maybe it kind of, maybe it's actually diminished from when, you know, from a few years ago. But uh, I, I sort of, yeah, because I love those stories of like these sort of great, uh, the kind of literary, intellect, literary, political, intellectual feuds that played out in the pages of, of magazines or, or journals or, or whatever. I mean, I just, I, I, like, I have this fantasy of teaching a whole class on that, where it would just be like a series of encounters. I, I'm, I'm trying to think of what some of them, there was a great one that has been written about, but, but uh, where it was Ralph Ellison and Irving Howe kind of talking about the black writer and kind of what the degree to which the, the, the black writer could or couldn't be could could or couldn't write sort of free of the burden of, of representing his people in some fashion. Um, and that, that was a, that was a fascinating one. Um, and did how talk about whether the Jewish writer could in that? In you know, that I don't argument? think he did. I mean, it's been a while since I, since I, <laughs> since I read that, but you know, I don't, I don't think he did. Um, it's funny. I also had a fantasy. My, I wrote my um, college thesis on, uh, the sort of relate, fraught relationship between blacks and Jews, and there, there's a kind of small, very small subgenre of like books on that topic. Like they're usually anthologies with different black and Jewish writers 
writing about it, um, by the end of which I felt like it was mostly a preoccupation of Jewish people and not black people. And probably we should stop writing, you know, those books and, and uh, editing those anthologies. But I always thought, and I mean, this would never go for a million reasons, right? I always thought it would be fascinating to have a book of what maybe it wouldn't just be black writers, but, but black and other Gentile writers on Jews, um, that it would be fascinating and it wouldn't go because it'd be so fraught, right? Like who would, who would sign up to <laughs> contribute to that book and really say in a sort of, um, you know, honest way, what they thought about, about Jews or Jewish writers or something like that. I mean, for a long time, because we were a sort of sufficiently marginalized people, we had license to write about, you know, the, the gen- sort of Gentile America, and we felt licensed to write about black people in the black psyche. And we don't, I think we probably still feel comfortable writing about, you know, Gentiles, but I think we certainly, and, and maybe appropriately, don't feel so comfortable writing about the black psyche or the black character or black culture anymore. Um, but we might be able to benefit. I, I just think it'd be interesting to have other people kind of take a look at us in that way. Uh, I, I I think once you got one or two people on board, you could you could you could do it. It's funny the way you say we. We like the, we. I, the, I never the have Jews. said we. I've never said we the Jews, but I never deny that. That's I'm a because Jew. you're of. I have a I have a theory about this. <laughs> That's because you're of that generation. It's like this specific. It's the specific cohort that 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 you're in. You're what like mid forties. No, I'm I'm fifty one. Okay, yeah, that's funny because I still think of myself as mid thirties, but I think of you as ten years older than me. I just forgot that I was forty. Uh, <laughs> um, Lucky but you. But I feel like um, the people around your age. It was just a period in American culture when when the assimilation was just at the yeah, right. Yeah, it was something. It's like you guys don't seem to have a lot of anxiety about it. Like you don't necessarily feel that identified with Jews, but you don't feel horribly guilty about not feeling that way. Like you don't feel super twisted. You just don't seem to care as much about whether you're Jewish or not Jewish or how Jewish you are to the extent that people before and after you do. Um, I mean, I don't know about the you know y- younger folk at this point, but... Yeah, I, I agree with everything you're saying, and I'd, I'd be I kind of I'm resisting starting a whole conversation on that, but I don't want to because I want to I want to make sure I touch on a couple of things that interested me. Uh, this isn't really about fame, but one of the things that made me fear that perhaps you had you had taken this right turn is how third person the book you know, in terms of attention and writing something and, and it being your book you spent ten years on. It's a very, very third-person book, and, and I think of you as a very, very first-person writer, and and it, it's very well done. But it's it was like oh, he's distancing himself from. It's not polemic. It doesn't take us. You know, it 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 describes really interestingly. Yeah, uh, it's funny because I remember. Uh, I'm, I probably won't get this exactly right, but I think I sent you a copy of my book proposal. Like, so I guess it must have been like ten years ago or something like that. I remember and that. I felt like yeah. your response was, was less than enthusiastic. I felt like I, you were thrown off by exactly that same thing. Where's, Where's Dan? Dan? Yeah. And, you know, and I, I didn't take it personally. What I took it as was maybe 
just a you know you and I had been doing this blog together where it was much more first person so it wasn't a voice you were familiar with but also maybe it was not a voice you were that interested in or it wasn't a it wasn't the kind of stuff you were that interested in so I didn't take it personally um but it's funny that that <laughs> like I mean and it makes sense right that you still have that reaction um well it shows how much I know because it it, it it's really it, it completely worked well I don't know I mean you know it, I don't I mean well, it worked in terms of it, it. It it holds together really nicely, and it's had a lot of success. <laughs> it, it you know it, it does it does a really good job. I loved you know I liked in your reading I, the 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 C-SPAN video, hearing your takes much more. That's just what I yeah, it's what I enjoy. I'll be interested to see. So so I have a few things to say to that. One is there's something that I'm writing right now where I, I sort of wrote it and it should be out. Kind of it may even be out by the time you edit and put this out, but it's just. Um, with, that's more, uh, more first person. It's a blend of this stuff, but it's, uh, I decided I reached out to the guy who wrote a review of the book for the American conservative magazine. And just cause I was not to fight, pick a fight. I was just interested in some things he was saying and I thought they might be interested. So I, I basically just said, Hey, do you think they'd be interested in publishing an exchange between us? Uh, and they were, they're just, I, th I think just on the website, I just wanted something to do. I thought it'd be fun. So I wrote, I mean, it was pretty long. It was like 2000 words and it was kind of, it was kind of blending sort of myself, but also talking about the themes of the book. So I'd be interested in, in, in your response to that. And, and uh, the other thing I was going to say is like, I don't have a lot of anxiety about, you know, it's possible. I think it's very possible that, you know, maybe 20 years from now, I might be writing in a more first person way or something. And I might look back on this and, and, and not in a dismissive way, but saying like, well, maybe that was a, that was a phase that I had to go through, you know, to get to the confidence where I could go first person, or maybe I won't, or maybe I'll do first person things. And, and they're just different modes that I feel like I can operate in. Um, I definitely have had a lot of failures of first person writing. Um, like my, my, a lot of my grad school experience was a sort of, and I, and a, and a, and a useful and healthy process, but a, a process of persuading me that doing a certain kind of first person writing was not my calling. And I, that certain kind, I would say was that would actually be the thing that you're very good at. Like the, the, like what you did with, uh, I'm going to forget the name of it, but the piece that you wrote that was kind of the, the peep show, peep show, right. Which I loved, loved, loved. I l came to the conclusion that that specific thing I couldn't do well. And I, I came to that through like hard won experience that doesn't necessarily mean there aren't other first person things that I can't do well. Like I think the, what I probably could do well would be less narrative. It would be more, be less sort of personal essayistic. It would be more sort of just essayistic or something like that where I'm working my way in and around various, you know, issues and ideas. Um, As you kind of were the person in our, who, uh, our who blog. Did that? Who did that? <laughs> right. Yeah. So, Very, yeah, really so, well. so, I think I was right about that. I think there was a certain thing I tried to do. I liked the idea of doing that. I like reading that stuff. And I learned just in the way you learn that like there's just certain things you can't do, that that was not not what I was best at. And I and this other stuff that, you know, the, the voice of the book is something that I think I'm good at. And um, and so I think it's authentic. It's absolutely authentic in that way, which doesn't mean that it's, you know, the end point of my evolution or or the only thing that I can or will do. And I think the thing that I wrote, you know, that this thing that's coming out in, in the American conservative, which is like, it's not, whatever, it's not like a big thing, but I like it. I mean, I think it's, I think it's good. It feels real. It feels sort of like it would be interesting to read if you're interested in this stuff. The fact that you wrote to this reviewer also brings up something that 
you know, I've, I've, the, you're, you're, you know, you're the, you know, I've probably talked to 14 people. I have seven episodes. Almost everybody and myself talk about uh, the plus side of pain being access. So you wrote the book. You, you, you know, does, do you feel like you have, I mean, do you have access to proposing another book more easily? Did you get this this American conservative piece easily? Are do thing are things you know are things coming to you more easily in terms of you know have you quit your day job? <laughs> I haven't even remotely quit my day job. Um, yeah, and I haven't sort of. So I'll be sort of thinking as I talk as I talk because I don't think I've sort of formulated this very well. I, I would say there's one sense in which it feels like abs- almost absolutely nothing has changed, um, like. Um, I haven't quit my day job. I just took a new day job that I like. Um, and um, I've had one one unsolicited email from an editor asking me to do something. So that had never happened before. That was nice. Um, I think, yeah, I think so. Okay, there's that access. Right, right. If I had done that before the book came out, um, if I just said, hey, I have an idea for a fun thing that I want to do for the website, like would they have gone back to me? Like, no, probably not. Um, it's not dramatic. Um, I think, I think probably, um, you know, it, 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 it probably changes. It surely changes my status somewhat in subtle ways within the ecosystem of Austin, the, the sort of literary and journalistic ecosystem of Austin, right? So yeah, I, I saw that in San Francisco. I don't a lot know what that have. like. I mean, I don't know that I could point to any specific interaction um, where I or where I could sort of say, "Aha, you know, that would not have happened before uh, the book came out." But I, I kind of, I kind of suspect that that is the case. You have some legitimacy that you can just kind of right. feel. Um, I'm trying to think of what else. Uh, you know, an interesting that had not I had not anticipated <laughs> was simply the fact of getting up and like doing my you know my book party at the at, at book people in Austin and getting up and you know and, and and when I did the reading in New York and I did a reading in DC and things like that and so people who'd known me for a long time or, or not that long a time but only know me in a social context and maybe knew in the abstract that I was writing a book and they saw me you know up there sort of talking about my book and being kind of intellectual and, and, you know, professorial and that kind of thing. They just never seen me in that light before. Right. And I didn't realize, uh, you know, this is, this is, I assume to some extent that people know that I, I just assume people knew that I knew that I was that guy knew that I was spent a lot of time thinking about this stuff and, you know, could go into a lot of complexity and detail about these things and like to sort of pontificate and theorize and all of these things. Um, and maybe, and, and maybe because at earlier phase of my life, I just had more opportunities to be like that. You know, it's like in college, like I was the guy I'd stay up until three in the morning to sort of talk about this stuff. And I just don't do that in my life now. Right. I mean, I have, you know, I have kids, I have a job, like when do I, but whatever reason I was, it was part of my identity that people saw me that way. And I suddenly realized that they hadn't. And, but now they were now they're like, Whoa, I didn't know Dan was so smart. I was like, you didn't. <laughs> uh, in my own tiny little way, these, these, this two months 
has been a coming out for me where I live because I'm not attached to the UMass literary crowd and I'm not attached to Northampton arts and literary crowd. And I'm a guy who owns a bar here to a lot of people. And, and so people don't know I've ever done anything else. And is there, and is there like, is there also that sense you have that like it, people who know you from that context, if you mention something about writing, it's like, it's like the taxi driver who says he's working on a novel. Like, <laughs> like it's not, it, it's not really real. And you want to, oh, yeah, even if they don't mean it. Right. Yeah. And you want to be like, no, no, no. Like I, you know, I went to school for this. I published, <laughs> I don't know if you feel that impulse, but like, I feel that impulse, but I also am like, I haven't done much in five or six years. So I don't feel like I can do it. But at least I'm, yeah. This is like a real part I'm of his doing life, a thing. identity, and yeah, yeah. And it, it comes back to also to ambition and risk. I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm just doing this thing I want to do, and it's 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 making me feel really good. <laughs> uh, you know, that's it, great. Yeah, I'm excited uh, for you. Uh, just to be out there thinking. I don't have long conversations with people. This I have. I've had one with with uh, t- ten people. Uh, and it's great to do again. Well, I hate to you go back to Mark Maron, but he's talked about that. I mean, he's talked about just that sort of the experience of doing the podcast and like the experience of listening for him of listening to people and getting better at that. Um, and and but also just the, the the opportunity to have these kinds of conversations, which you just you know maybe after college or grad school, you just don't tend to have that often. Um, as much as you'd like, right? And it can be really sustaining and, and rewarding and, and gratifying. Um, hmm. But, I, you know, it's funny. I, I, I don't know, maybe I should ask you this because I'm interested in it, just a sort of, you know, self-absorbed way. Like, you know, what do you assume about, how do you perceive me in light of my quote-unquote success with this book? I... It's a, that's a great question. As I've said to you, with people I like, I feel a great pride. Well, yeah, I mean, no, I wasn't questioning that. It's more like... No, 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 I'm, I know you're not questioning. I'm just telling you, actually, that is, that, that's the feeling. And when my dad asked me, I was, I was like, what an... You know, when he asked me about jealousy, I was like, that's such an interesting... It's interesting that I hadn't thought about it. Yeah. Uh, I'm always really... I, and there's... There's always the fear in in me that I think my father also has had with more successful friends of of being uh, of taking too much pleasure in other success and being kind of the star fucker. Right. <laughs> uh, and I've always kind of I don't have much of a super ego for that, so I just do it. If I love something someone's doing, I just gush about it, and right. people can think what they want. Right. But I, but afterwards, I'll be like, oh my god, you know, I'm I'm writing coattails and it's weird because you know i i I have some friends now who other people you know are more impressed with than i am because i don't know their work as well as other people do i mean i'm sure don't i'm sure you've thought about this like like don't we all have to you know to to your anxiety and to about like writing like don't we all and we all struggle like don't we all have to like you know get rid of as much as possible all like uh, those sort of anxieties about how and why we're doing it. I mean, it, it's just sort of like, they're so, they're so destructive, right? If what you want to do is be a sort of, you know, creative and, 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 and successful and have people see your work or observe your work in some way. I mean, all of that, that anxiety can be so toxic to that, right? 
is it wrong to ride the coattails of my friend's success? Is it wrong to take advantage of the fact that my brother is an editor and so I can do some something, you know, he'll let, he'll enable me to do something. Is it unseemly to, um, you know, try and promote my book and reach out to people and say, will you write a story on this? You know, all of these things are so toxic to, they're just toxic, right? Um, and they're toxic at least, for, let's, let me say, for people like us, where we're just so far on the sort of sort of incapacitating direction of the anxieties as opposed to the sort of moving forward, hustling, doing the things to achieve our ambition, right? Like, like we have... We have a lot of room. <laughs> we have a lot of room to go before we're in the in danger of being too self-promoting and too driven by desire for success or ambition. Uh, we are not in danger of that. And there's a great. I just this is like I don't know if it'll make it into the podcast, but for you at least, there's this great Dave Hickey essay. Dave Hickey is this great art writer, art critic. Um, has a book called Air Guitar, which is really, you should get it. It's really pretty amazing. Uh, and I don't even, I won't even go into kind of who he has a sort of cult, cult following and sort of cult status. Uh, he has a short essay in that book called My, My Weimar, um, about a professor he had in college. I think he was at like Texas Christian or something who was a, a sort of exile from Germany, uh, from Nazi Germany who, and I, I won't even try and replicate it, but basically he kind of inhabits this guy and gives this whole kind of monologue about to his students, you know, that this German, this professor is giving about um, how, how you shouldn't be as an aspiring artist or art critic or whatever, you shouldn't be an Aryan muscle boy. And what that meant in the context of arts, he's like, <laughs> I don't know try to describe it, but in, in the hickey sort of moral universe. What it meant was people who were too invested in these uh, sort of uh, puritanical notion of what art was. He's like, you know, all the Aryan muscle boys went off to war and while they were gone, all the Jews and the fags came in and like made a business out of art. And, and then like the Aryan muscle boys came back and like kicked them out and said art is about purity and idealism and something like that. And he would and the, the, the German professor would like point his finger at them and say, don't be Aryan muscle boys or something like that. And there was something and it sort of it sort of it connected my it, it helped connect some things to me. It, it was like sort of my Jewish identity, my sort of desire for success. And it was like that there's actually <laughs> it, it made a virtue of something that it actually made a virtue of something that had, I had perceived of as a vice, which was the willingness to think about success in pragmatic terms, the willingness to think about getting paid for it and being successful, and, um, and that that could actually be uh, uh, constructive for art as opposed to destructive to it. Um, sounds, sounds like something I should read. You should read it. And I mean, it was like, yes. of course, it's like, you know, the, the, the line between a sort of beautiful rationalization and, and something that's true is probably thin or, or, or non-existent. But, but it was the rationalization. I, it was a rationalization that has helped me on my, you know, my road towards being more, I think, functional on that, on that plane um, about sort of, being willing to say, yeah, this, these are some things I want. I have enough confidence in my own sort of authenticity as an artist and, and as a person that I can pursue them without feeling like I'm going to become somebody alien to myself. Um, I don't feel particularly successful at all, by the way, even though my book has gotten a lot of nice reviews.
I think I'm appreciating parts of it and not appreciating other parts of it. I think that I, uh, I'm appreciating what I said before about kind of this feeling that my status has shifted somewhat. Um, and I'm appreciating whatever increased access I have. Um, mm-hmm. But not that your words are being appreciated by strangers. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, at least mm. not the sort of sh- maybe the shallower version of that, which is like that there are people out there who know who I am or know my book in some way. Um, I don't know because it's funny because that was or it's not funny. It's probably very typical. Like before the book came out, all my fantasies were about exactly this stuff. Right. So not all of them. But so so many of them were about that or some version of that. That they were precisely about, you know. I mean, I had the fantasies of like actual monetary success, which have not come true, right? Like, you know, my book has not sold so fabulously well that I'm making any money. You know, I, mean, I got my advance, but I'm not making any royalties. Like that's probably that's not going to happen, you know. But 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 the the fantasies of you know I would be on C-SPAN and I would get be reviewed in the New Yorker and all of these things like and that that would somehow I don't even know what it is that I thought would happen or I thought I would get you've spent your 2006 advance <laughs> <laughs> uh, but like I, I you know I, I had some vague notion of what that would feel it would feel like something it would feel I don't know if it would be euphoria or satisfaction or self-satisfaction or and 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 I feel like none of that has happened like I don't have any I don't have any sense of of or, or at least not one that I that I can sort of consciously attach to of that, of being a being a person in the world in that sense. That's in a way great to hear because it just it goes back to what just about everybody has said, and that is you just got to do stuff because you like doing it, because it's important to you to do, because the other stuff never, it's insatiable or unsatiable. Right. I will say the one the one qualifier to that, which is a different kind of thing, is I think it was gratifying. You know, we all have sort of an imposter syndrome, right, where we, we feel like we're phonies. Um, and I got a few reviews from people who are sort of either heroes or at least sort of uh, models for me of, of what I wanted to be or, or, or people who I think are sort of unquestionably sort of legit right in this realm and uh is there a, a top of the heap person you name i mean i can name a, i mean so 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 there were sort of four of them so um alan wolf review george packer sam tannen house and john gray uh, john gray's john gray's a, a british philosopher who i'm a big fan of mm-hmm. um <laughs> men are from mars not that one yeah i know yeah not that, that one yes i, uh, I know and you know I would say two of those reviews were, were were very positive, and the other two were sort of not positive or negative, but took the book very seriously. And so, and so, yeah, and so how, yeah, like Packer and um, Tannen House mostly kind of uh, almost didn't write about the book in a way; they just wrote about the people I wrote about in the book. Um, that was a New Yorker piece, but, I believe. The Packer, uh, yeah, right? that was yep. a New Yorker piece, and the Tannen House piece was in the Atlantic. So, but even those, it was like basically, I felt like what it was saying to me is like, okay, you are one of, you are a peer of mine, right? You are, you are a member of our club. Um, and I think that was, I think that's been, that feels good. And, and maybe, um, 
you know, there's a piece of it that feels good. And there's a piece of it, I think, of just like helping to fill a little bit of that, like, you know, erode the the sort of the, the negative feeling or fear of being a phony. Um, so that actually I did fantasize about that actually did happen, which is nice. Um, the other stuff, you know, it hasn't happened to like a sort of fabulous degree. Like, uh, you know, I wasn't, I'm not, I haven't been on the daily show or, or, you know, Terry gross or something like that, but it happened to like a reasonable degree. And I haven't felt that that's felt so insubstantial to me. Um, but, um, yeah. And I, and I was, you know, it was even weird. Like there was just like, if just a few weeks when all this stuff was happening, when I was actually really kind of discomfited by the one-on-one interactions with people where I felt like or I feared they were seeing me through that lens in some way. Like I didn't know how to deal with that. Which lens? The lens, lens of-, of he's a person like the lens of, I have some aura around me of somebody who's different from the herd. Uh, you know, and it was pretty transient, right? But it was like, for a little while, I had that. And, and I didn't know what to, I didn't know what to do with that. You know, that was just, that was very weird. Like, I actually was like, started avoiding people for, to, to a certain extent, because I didn't want to deal with it. I don't know, because it made me uncomfortable. Uh, How people handle that is, is fascinating to see. Yeah. Um, that is so funny that you, you know, I, I haven't been on the daily show and I haven't been on Terry gross. How many people measure themselves? <laughs> oh God. Uh, so, but so. the funny thing is like, even if I had been on the daily show and I had been on Terry gross, like that wouldn't have changed anything. Right. I mean, that's not, that's not real fame. Like that's not, that's not Tana. That's not Tanasi. I mean, Tanasi Coates wrote something about how I think he had to like sell the brownstone in Brooklyn or Harlem that he bought because people were like showing up at his door because somebody had published the address and people were showing up at his door. And I mean, there's even, a, I mean, there's a few levels in between that and where I am, but I mean, Terry Gross interviews five people a week, right? I mean, that's like, that actually doesn't change anyone's status in a really profound way um, on its own. Uh, two questions about positive negative, uh, possible negative aspect. And one is, uh, I don't want to, you to feel I, I I don't want you to to rebut or defend, but I just read the National Review review. So how does it feel? Is Ron Capshaw someone respectable? Do, are do you want to be able to say, wait, you're not getting it? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. There's two. There's actually two National Review reviews. Oh, I only read the that other one. one. Is kind of negative too. That one was not as negative mm-hmm. as that one. I mean, so um, yeah, I would say. Two things. One is that that review did get under my skin a little bit, but I would say there was no negative review that really drew blood in the way that I'd feared. I absolutely had fears that somebody would write a review um, and I would feel sort of exposed and humiliates too strong, but it would it would it would be really tough uh, because I'm like a delicate flower like all the rest of us. Right. and I had fears of that, and I think that was possible, but it was, it, it was a certain kind of review I was fearing. And it was one, it was kind of the inverse of what I said with those guys who I really respected. It was a review that said, he's not a member of our club. This is not a serious book. He doesn't really know what he's talking about. Um, and none of the negative reviews that I got said that. And the ones that I did, um, um, you know, and, and, and not to be like, you know, pretend to more, 
uh, sort of, what's the word, like equipoise or something than I have. Like, I got annoyed. I read them. I thought about what I would say to those critics if I like, were in the room with them. But it was, but, but it was not that big a deal. Because the negative reviews I got was just like, there was something, I mean, whatever. I mean, this is what every writer is going to say. But like, it was either like they had an axe to grind uh, I mean, Ron Capshaw, and I don't mind saying this, is just a total like obscure mid-level hack, who who is not who is not up to up to reviewing my book. <laughs> uh, let me let me use that to tell one little yeah, story. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, that is, the, I used to review yeah. books for the uh, for the San Francisco Chronicle, and one of the the coups and one that I really wanted is I'm a, I'm a poker player and I read poker books and I got to review perhaps one of the biggest poker books ever, and that was a uh, Jim McManus's. Uh, Positively fourth, uh-huh. fourth, uh, which is a a great book on his the, uh, expanding on uh, Harper's oh, piece. Right. He got I read to, the, they I read paid the him Harper, to go to the I World read Series. The Harper's piece. I didn't. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then he made it into a very you made know, it far right. It, it became like a, a six hundred page book because he didn't only talk about that, which I thought that should have been the book, the memoir. And then he went into a history of poker and into the into, into scandals. And a, a murder story about about Benny Binion, who owned the casino, and it got very tawdry. And I wrote this review that was, you know, I don't know, ten paragraphs long, and eight of them were positive. And then I said, could have done without the murder mystery scandal. The day it came out, I get like a, a you know, a, a five hundred word email from him. And, and and it's explaining how I don't understand how books, you know, and and in the end we had a conversation and on email no less and ended up coming to to a nice conclusion, and because I was like I, I really loved your book, you, you know, but but he was scouring the internet. He he's in he's in Chicago, and and I almost wanted to say to him, buddy, you're just making me feel good, right? By like validating because, I, yeah, you're so validating me more than you should. Oh, okay. So this reminds me of something because I, I actually saw so, <laughs> I did a version of that. <laughs> no, uh, I did. But, but um, you know, it, it's funny. The one that got under my skin the most, which was it, like basically if you look back at it, it was like a relatively positive review. It was, was something I think it was in the Pittsburgh paper. It was their book critic. And it was, you know, uh, you know, probably if you had to grade it, it was positive. But there was something about – I don't know. I mean, the truth is maybe I was just like in a bad mood that day or something like that. But, you know, but but my my subjective experience of it was I sort of felt like I sort of had this feeling that maybe he actually did think it was a good book. But but that the balance, the the impression the review gave was that it was kind of a fine book that was kind of boring. In other words, he was doing his sort of like, this is good, this is bad, or this, I have a critique here. And none of the critiques were unfair. It was just that it was like, what, where it left the reader was, well, why would I read this book, right? It was just like, it's got some good stuff, it's got some bad, bad stuff. And, I, and for some, whatever reason, that just bothered me. And so I did like email him, and it was just like a brief thing, and he's just like, I like the book. And I was like, I, and I wrote back, I was like, yeah, yeah, I was just, I'm probably just in a bad mood or something like that. So I absolutely read all of those reviews. I absolutely think of what my responses would be. I would say, and I, I don't think I'm bullshitting myself about this, I would say, actually, I handled all of that pretty well. And I remain grateful that I got none of the, the kind of review that I, that I feared the most. Oh, is there another book in the works? 
Not right now. Uh, I'm enjoying, you know, just doing things on my own time, like that thing I was mentioning with the American Conservative, and there's one or two video projects I'm trying to get off the ground, but I'm, I'm just enjoying not owing some. Can one find the videos on the internet? Oh, well, I have them all on my Vimeo page. I mean, I don't know what, the, if you search okay. like Daniel Oppenheimer Vimeo, cool. it'll I'll come up. It. I'm happy for you that you're doing this. It seems like a good project for you. And, and congratulations to you. I will really, let's talk soon. Okay. Yeah, I'd like to. This is fun. All right. Bye, Jamie. Take care, Dan. As I mentioned at the top of the show, you can find links to Daniel Oppenheimer and his work, both filmic and literary, at 15minutesjamieberger.com or on our Facebook page. There's also a link up there to my piece, Peep Show, that we mentioned in case you found that title interesting. On both the Facebook page and the site, as I like to remind you, you can also find a guide on how to rate and review podcasts on iTunes. If you're enjoying this, please make the effort to do that. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter also at at 15 mins, that's 15 mins, Jamie B. Thank you so much for listening. This is 15 Minutes. I'm Jamie Berger. Jamie Berger.